Okay, well, what I will do, of course, after that is to say the words you already know. Turn with me, if you will, to the place where this week's Torah portion begins. It's uh, chapter 6 of the book of Shemot, or Exodus. Actually, about the second verse. Um, not the same as the first, but it is a verse we're going to see repeated all the time. And uh, that introduces the uh, the Torah portion this week. So the last verse in last week's Torah portion is, Yehoah spoke to Moshe, and he said these words. Uh, literally, immortal words, words that are so key, and words that set up um, not only uh, the rest of uh, this particular Parsha, but the rest of the story, the rest of the whole book. And it is, uh, it's something I want to make sure we emphasize as we go through here. It says, Ami Yehuah. He is going to say this over and over again in about every context. And, and I appeared is the first verse that's officially part of the portion. And, of course, and I appeared in Hebrew is Vayera. That would be the first unique word in the portion. Of course, that then is the name of the portion, Vayera. So, and I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Yaakov as El Shaddai. Now, the English says um, God Almighty, but El Shaddai is, uh, is the real name that was used there. And... Um, the all-sufficient one, I, I like that translation at least as well as uh, God Almighty. But then he says something which is um, interesting, uh, fascinating even, a bit problematic, sometimes confuses folks because it doesn't seem like it's quite correct. And uh, here is where uh, we will uh, we'll quote Rashi and uh, some, uh, some inside baseball or inside Hebrew. But he says the following, But by my name, Yahuwah, I did not make myself known to them. Now there's a couple ways to render this in English. What's interesting is in Hebrew the word is the the, the phrase there is um lo no dati. Okay, uh yada, we recognize that root word in there. Yada is known, right? Or know to know something intimately. Uh Yodati, that's me, that's the personal form. So I did not, lo, I didn't, this did not happen, did not um, make myself known to them. Now, what Rashi points out is there's another way this would usually be said in Hebrew, which is lo hodati, which means, uh, you know, I, I didn't let them know that name or something akin to that. And that is not what is being said here. In other words, he's not saying they never heard this name. They did, in fact, hear the name. If you look, you'll see that Abraham was told explicitly, ani Yahuwah, so was Yitzhak in the book of Genesis. And as um, anybody with a, a concordance or a, an online search tool can can check out pretty quickly. Yod Hey Vav Hey, his name appears 165 times in the book of Genesis. So it's not that his name was unknown, it's that by my name, Yahuwah, I did not make myself known to them. Well, what does that mean? And the answer, we are going to see. All right? I've also established my covenant with them to give them a the land of Canaan, a land of their sojourns, wherein they sojourn. And moreover, I have heard, I've been listening, to the groaning of the Benai Israel, whom the people of Mitzrayim, the Egyptians, keep in bondage. And I have, the root word here is zakar, to remember or bring to mind. I have brought to mind my covenant. It's not like he ever really forgot it, but it's time. And now it is front and center. So therefore, he says, I say unto the Benai Israel, Oh, wait a second. Now, this is another one of those really key passages. Uh, it's going to show up in places like the uh, the Passover Seder, uh, in the Haggadah, but, um, or some say the Haggadah. But in any case, these are also called the four I wills. And they're important. And as uh, you'll often see pointed out by the sages, these I wills kind of are an escalating or a temporal process. In other words, there's an order to them. 
And they happen in order. So, he says what first? Ani Yahuwah. Well, clearly. Ani Yahuwah. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So, step one, get them out of there. And I will deliver you from their bondage. So the deliverance, uh, you know, obviously it happens after bringing them out. And it sounds like this is somehow a, a process that is maybe psychological or an, an understanding of what has happened. And uh, we're going to see that's the, the temporal thing that continues here. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then finally, I will take you to me. For a people, an Am, and I will be you, Elohim, and you shall know, Ki Ani Yahuwah Eloheke. Um, Elohekem, this is the plural form. Uh, your God, y'all's God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land concerning which I lifted up my hand to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a heritage, Ani Yahuwah. So all of this sounds very key, very fundamental, very important. There is a, a process here of a deliverance and a, a making free and then essentially taking uh, us, them, to be a people, and you shall know that I am. Okay? So Moshe, it says, spoke so unto the B'nai Israel, but they didn't listen. They didn't hearken to him because of impatience of spirit and for cruel bondage. They would say, hey, we got other things on our mind. So Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, and he said, Look, go in, speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he let the Benai Israel go out of his land. Moshe spoke before Yahuwah, and he said, Look, uh, behold, the children of Israel haven't hearkened to me so far. What makes you think they're going to listen now? How will Pharaoh hear me too? Uh, who, uh, who am I? I'm, I'm of uncircumcised lips. So Yahuwah spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, and he gave them a charge for the children of Israel, and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And then it says the following. Here's, this is like a, a, a um, an aside here. We're going to get a, um, a restatement of the name. So here are the heads of the fathers' houses. And I'll go through this reasonably um, briefly, because this is, a, uh, this is a portion that's got so much in it. I encourage folks to read it. And, um, and to familiarize yourself, of course, we have the, the names of the 12 tribes and the heads of the houses at this time of those tribes. First, the sons of Reuben, firstborn of Israel, Hanach, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These, it says, are the families of Reuben. Then we have the sons of Simeon, Yemuel, and Yamin, and Ohad, Yakin, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanitish woman. These are the families of Simeon. And then the names of the sons of Levi, According to their generations, now these names we're going to hear. We're, we're going to hear a lot of them again, but these are particularly important, of course, because they are going to be the ones that are assigned the temple service later on. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And now we're, we're going to get one additional fact: the years of the life of Levi were 137. And not only that, we're going to get the uh, the grandsons here: the sons of Gershon, Libni and Shemai, and the sons of Kohath, Amram, Itzar, and Hebron, and Uziel. The years of Kohath, one of those, were 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These now are the families of the Levites, according to their generations. And uh, we're going to see in a second, because we're talking about the genealogy that leads to Moshe, of course, why some of these years of the life are important and how the uh, pieces fit. Amram, it took, says, took him, uh, Yochabed, his father's sister, to wife. And she bore him, ah, yeah, Aaron and Moshe. The years of the life of Amram were 137 years. Sons of Itzar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. Sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphon, and Sithri. 
And then uh, on to Aaron. He took a wife. Her name was Elisheba, or Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab. She, um, the, she was the sister of Nachshon, uh, and he took her to wife. And she bore him, we know these names too, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And I've got a note, a parenthetical note in my margin here, that we know a little bit about the characteristics of Nachshon, and it sounds like her sons, the sages say, carry some of the traits of Nachshon. They were bold, and they were leaders, but they were also maybe a bit uh, tending towards impetuousness. Sons of Korah, Asher, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korahites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took to him one of the daughters of Putiel to wife. She bore him a fellow whose name is also going to appear in Scripture, a very important uh, player. This would be now the grandson of uh, Abra, of, um, of uh, Aaron. His name, um, Phineas in the English, or Pinchas in the Hebrew. These, it says, are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites, according to their families. And they, uh, these are they that Aaron and Moshe, to whom Yahuwah said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, according to their hosts. These are they that spoke then to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the Benai Israel from Egypt. And they are, in fact, Moshe and Aaron. So we've got a lot of detail on their family tree. And um, notice we don't get the rest of uh, the whole list here, just these first few. Came to pass on the day when Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, there in the land of Mitzrayim, Yahuwah spoke, and he said, Ani Yahuwah, go and speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I tell you, all that I speak unto you. So, Moshe then, he said it again, uh, before Yahuwah, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How shall Pharaoh hearken unto me? We're going to get the answer. And we're going to see that this too is part of the, uh, the bigger puzzle, uh, or if you will, things that are being laid out, and it's key to the character of the Creator, and that literally is what we're talking about. All of these things are essentially one and the same. Yehudah then said to Moshe, Look, I have set you in the stead of Elohim to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. So it's not that you are, in fact, a god or anything of the sort. It's just that I have, because I'm speaking through you, I have put you in this place to speak to him as if that was the case. And Aaron is your prophet. You will speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, will speak unto Pharaoh, that he should let the Benai Israel go out of his land. And I, in fact, now this is interesting, and it's also um, not just part of the the picture here. Uh, it's fundamental, and it's one of those things people argue about, and I would say misunderstand a lot. So as we go through this, I will spend a little time talking about some of the uh, the key elements of this. Okay, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So Yahuwah knows the end from the beginning. Notice, though, he says, I will do this, but he does not do this right off the bat. He's going to give Pharaoh a chance. So don't ever think that Pharaoh did not have a choice in this. He does. And I'll multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh, here he he says, he knows what's going to happen. Pharaoh ain't going to listen. He will not hearken unto you, and I will lay my hand upon Egypt to bring forth my hosts, my people, the Benai Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And here we go. It's going to be so thorough that it says the Egyptians too. They shall know, ki ani Yahuwah. When I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt, and I bring the Benai Israel, the children of Israel, out from among them. So, Moshe and Aaron did so, as Yahuwah commanded them. Well, that's what they did. And at this point, now this is fascinating too, Moses, it says, was fourscore or eighty years old. Aaron, he was three years older. He was fourscore or eighty and three when they spoke unto Pharaoh. 
So pause just a second here. This is always, uh, on the one hand, folks, this is kind of interesting, and uh, it, uh, it should be kind of comforting. Because we oftentimes think that, well, you know, a guy that's 80 years old, he's a has-been, he's, he's washed up, uh, he, he not got much left in him. And the answer is hardly. Moses is just getting rolling. The most important part of his life is just now beginning. Matter of fact, the part that is going to be recorded for all, for all eternity in, uh, in scripture has just begun. And, uh, I like to think of his life, cause it's, it's really, it's 120 years in, in three stages. You got the first 40 years, he's learned about Egypt, learned about the laws and customs of, uh, of that land. Next 40 years, he's out in the, in the, in the boondocks, learning how to tend sheep. And I've always thought if there was ever a metaphor for how to be prepared for what's, what Elohim has planned, that's got to be it, right? Forty years tending sheep. And now, after that, he is ready for another forty years, as it turns out. So, Yahuwah spoke unto Moshe and Aaron, and he said, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show me something, show me a sign or a wonder, well, then you will say unto to Aaron, take your rod, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it would become a serpent. Now, this is an interesting word. In this case, it's not uh, lachash. The plural is uh, it's a tani or tanin in the plural. So, this is a slightly different word uh, than nakash. This is a this is a slithering thing that we might think of as a snake. Now, Moshe and Aaron went into Pharaoh. Notice that doesn't tell us how they uh, how they accomplished this. They went right smack in to see the king. Obviously, they're uh, their path was made straight. Let's put it that way. So they did so, as Yahuwah commanded. Aaron did exactly what he was told. He cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his serpents and uh, before his servants, and it became a serpent. Uh, and um, Pharaoh did this. He called his wise men. He said, hey, see if you can match that. His sorcerers, his necromancers, some renderings will say, and they too, the magicians of Egypt, well, they did in like manner with their secret arts. Every one of them cast down his rod, and it became a serpent. And we've seen it in the movie, right? It was kind of impressive. I remember as a kid watching the, you know, Cecil B. DeMille's to the, the Ten Commandments, and wow, that, uh, that made an impression. They became serpents, but Aaron's rod ate them all up, swallowed every one of them. So uh, I guess he, he wins the encounter. But here's the key. It says, ve-yach-zach. That word, we recognize it, kazach, be strong and of good courage, and was hardened. Lev of Pharaoh. Lev is heart. So, and was hardened Pharaoh's heart. Hmm. Sounds like Pharaoh did it. It didn't have to be done for him. He, he did it. He did not hearken unto them as Yahuwah had spoken. So, the, the key here is all of these words get translated into English as they hardened his heart. But it turns out that what we're going to see as we go through here is that there are two different Hebrew words, very different connotations for what is happening. And in all of the first cases, Pharaoh does it himself. So he strengthens his heart. He makes his heart strong. He's not going to listen. And we're going to see there's another word that gets used as well. So, Yahuwah said unto Moshe, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. Now, there's the other word. And that word here is uh, kabod. His heart is not just kazak, it's kabod, it's stubborn. And, right, there's a difference between those words. He refuses to let the people go. Now, uh, he has, he, he, he interprets it this way. I made my heart strong because I'm a, I'm a lion heart. And as far as the creator's concerned, no, you're a stubborn heart. So, go into Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water. 
So he'll stand by the river's bank, and you go meet him. And that rod that you used to turn into a, uh, a serpent, uh, now you take it in your hand. And this time, interestingly, the word is nachash. I've always thought that's kind of uh, that's kind of fascinating. Um, so, are they synonyms, or are they just parallels here? And there's a slightly different Im- implication. Um, I can't help but think there's more to this, but I'm honestly not sure what. Anyway, the rod that was turned into an akash, he says, now take it in your hand and go and you say to him, Yahuwah, Elohim of the Hebrews, has sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hey, you haven't been hearkening. You have not shamarred up until now. You haven't listened and obeyed. It's not just enough to listen. you got to obey. Thus says Yahuwah then, in this you shall know, here we go. And here is, folks, where things are really going to come to a head and we see the theme of the whole book. Thus says Yahuwah, In this way you shall know, Ki, Ani, Yahuwah. Behold, I will smite with the rod that's in these hand, in my hand, this very hand, upon the waters which are in the river, and they will be turned into blood. Dom. The fish that are in the river, they're going to die. And the river will become foul, and the Egyptians won't want to drink it. Any water from the river. So Yahuwah said to Moshe, Say to Aaron, Take your rod, stretch your hand out over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over the streams, the ponds, the pools, everything that's water that they got, that they might become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So is this a chemical reaction? Well, anything that wasn't even touching the rivers of the waters, still, uh, even in vessels, they turned to, uh, to blood. Moshe and Aaron did so, as Yahuwah commanded. He lift up the rod, he smote the waters in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. Fish, they died. The river became foul. Egyptians couldn't stand it. They couldn't drink the water from the river. The blood was throughout all of uh, the land of Egypt. And the magicians of Egypt, they said, well, can we do that? In their secret arts, uh, they managed to accomplish the feat, which... Um, helped Pharaoh to harden his heart. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And in this case, again, the word there, the root word, has to do with kazak. It was made strong. He didn't hearken, though, and that was exactly as Yahuwah had already said he knew was going to happen. So Pharaoh turned around, he went in his house, and neither, it says, did he lay this, even this, to his heart. So he has seen some pretty miraculous stuff, and he's not paying attention, not the kind of attention he needs to. So all the Egyptians, they dug around the river looking for water, but they couldn't find uh, anything that would uh, was drinkable. Seven days were fulfilled, and after that, Yahuwah had smitten the river, and finally he said to Moshe, you go on into Pharaoh, and you say to him, this is what Yahuwah says, let my people go that they might serve me. And if you refuse to let them go, uh, just wait, I am this time going to smite all your borders with Zephardim, with frogs. And a river's going to swarm with frogs. You're going to be sick of frogs. They'll come up. They'll come into your house. They'll come into your bedchamber. They'll be on your bed. They'll be in the house of your servants, upon the people. They'll be in your ovens and your kneading bowls. Man, what a mess. Frogs are going to come up upon you, upon the people, and upon all your servants. Sounds fairly gnarly. Yahuwah then said to Moshe, All right, say to Aaron, Stretch forth your hand with that rod over the rivers, the canals, the pools, and cause frogs to come upon the land of Mitraim. So Aaron did so. He stretched out his hand over the waters. Frogs came up. They covered the land. 
Magicians, can we make more frogs as if we don't have enough? Let's try. Magicians did using their secret arts. And look, we can make even more frogs. I'm sure everybody was thrilled to have more frogs. Pharaoh then called for Moshe and Aaron, and he said, Entreat Yahuwah. In other words, go and pray to your God. And he uses the, the proper noun. Go and treat Yahuwah. And he said, uh, take away these frogs from me and from my people, and I will let your people go, that they might sacrifice unto Yahuwah. Now, wait a second. That was pretty easy, wasn't it? He hadn't even gotten through the second plague yet, and um, he's already caved. Uh, turns out it's not going to be quite so easy. And again, there has been a clue given, and we're going to see how this plays out. Moshe then said to Pharaoh, look, uh, have you this glory over me? Let me ask you this question. What time would you like the frogs to go away, right? What time should I entreat uh, for you on your behalf and for your servants and for your people that these frogs would be destroyed from you, from your houses, anything that uh, is here, and the only place they'll be left will be in the river. So Moshe is given Pharaoh a chance to see yet one more wonder, and um, this is where Pharaoh makes a fatal mistake. And and uh, essentially, uh, there is a there's a logical explanation that people have uh, have have uh, presupposed is going on here, uh, because Pharaoh thinks that this is a magic art, right? Some kind of an incantation. Maybe it's a natural thing. This is what uh, modern uh, pseudo scientists would say. Oh, they're going to go away anyway, and and Moses knows it, so he's asking me. What time would you like him to go away? And uh, that means that he knows they're going to go away real soon. So I'll fox him. I'll say, not right away. How about tomorrow morning? So that's what he says. Against tomorrow. Tomorrow morning. Let's do it then. Now, if you recall, this is where we get the, uh, the, uh, the lovely song that everybody's probably heard. One more night with the frogs. And uh, it's, it's kind of a funny, well, it's a funny song, but it's a funny way to think about it. Right? Are you sick of the frogs? When would you like the frogs to go away? Oh, tomorrow morning is good enough. Well, no, honestly, he's probably actually wishing they would go away immediately. But rather than admit that he um, he is given this option, and he thinks he can one-up Moshe, he's willing to spend one more night with the frogs. Okay, so here come the fatal response. As Moses says, and by the way, this is not the only time he's going to say this. He's He's going to use this against uh, Pharaoh more than once. Uh, all right, according to your word, you asked for it, you got it, so that you may know that there is no one like unto Yahuwah, our Elohim. You think you can can play fast and loose? I, I wasn't kidding you. You said it, that's what you're going to get. So the frogs, it'll, they'll depart from you and your houses and your servants and from your people. They'll remain in the river only, uh, yeah, tomorrow morning. So Moshe and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. Moses cried unto Yahuwah concerning the frogs, which he brought upon Pharaoh. And Elohim did, according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and out of the fields. And they gathered them up in heaps. Imagine heaps of stinking frogs. Yep, so many that the whole land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite now in the morning, uh, guess what? He hardened his heart. Now, this time... He did the kabod thing. He made his heart stubborn. So Pharaoh hardened, he stubbornized his own heart, and he did not hearken to them, as Yahuwah had already said was going to happen. So he changed his mind, He or he lied, he went back on his word. Anyway, Yahuwah then said to Moshe, okay, here's what you're going to do, stretch, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod, smite this time the dust of the earth, the afar, 
so that it might become gnats, or kin. Kin is the word here. Little teeny bugs, lice, noceums, um, gnats. Um, you know, there, there are some different renderings for these words, but the point is these are noxious little teeny bugs, so small you almost can't see them, but oh boy, you can feel them when there's billions of them. Throughout all the land of Mitzrayim. So they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod. He smote the dust of the earth. And there were ken, gnats everywhere. Upon man, upon beast, all the dust of the earth became gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, this time, let's see if we can't get it, uh, get some more gnats. Again, as if we don't have enough. The magicians, the necromancers, the sorcerers, they tried. They used their secret arts. More gnats. That's what we want. They couldn't do it. Still, though, there was enough. There were gnats on every man and upon beast. They failed. And this time, so here's here's yet another of the major elements uh, of the story that are playing out. This time, the magicians, they got it. This is, wow, this is some powerful juju. Magic, we can't understand. And not only that, they went one step further. This, they said, is the very finger of Elohim. This is a real one. We're dealing with a real Elohim, uh, real L here. And what? Pharaoh's heart was kazakh. It was made strong. He didn't hearken to them as Yahuwah had spoken. So, Yahuwah said to Moshe, Rise up early, when? In the morning, right? Stand before Pharaoh when he comes forth to the river. Say to him, Thus says Yahuwah, Let my people go, so that they can serve me. Otherwise, if you won't let my people go, behold, this time I'm going to send swarms. And swarms of what? Uh, well, uh, arove is the Hebrew word we're going to see here. But um, sometimes this uh, this term uh, arove is literally just translated as swarms. So swarms of what? Well, usually it's understood to be flies, but some other kind of noxious bugs. Swarms of them, though. Upon you, your servants, upon the people, upon your houses, the houses of the Egyptians, they'll be full of swarms of these flies or whatever they are, bugs, and also uh, the ground, wherever they are. They're going to be everywhere. And I will this time, it says, sever. Now, here is another major change. So, on the one hand, at this point, um, at the swarms of flies, after this time of the gnats, we see a couple of major transitions. One, the magicians get it. Two, I will sever, I will set apart in that day the land of Goshen, where my people are, and I will separate that so that no flies will be there from the... um, from the part where the Egyptians all are. To the end that you may know that I am Ki Ani Yahuwah in the midst of the earth. Now here comes the uh, the other really major transition in the uh, plagues at this point. Uh, the word here is um, um, pedut, usually rendered, and uh, it's a division, a demarcation, a, a barrier. Um, I'm going to put a division between my people and your people. And guess when? Tomorrow. That's when the sign will be. So Yahuwah did so, and grievous swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, his servants' houses, in all the land of Mitzrayim. The land was literally ruined by reason of these swarms of flies. Moshe then, he hears from uh, from Pharaoh, along with Aaron, and he says, Go, go, go! Uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, go and sacrifice to your Elohim in the land. And Moshe said, you know, it's not its not meat that we should do so. Uh, we need to sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to Yahuwah If we do that, won't the Egyptians stone us? They'll think it's an abomination. We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to Yahuwah as he shall command us. Pharaoh says, wait, here it is again. It sounds like he's caved. His, his heart wasn't made um, stubborn or 
um, kazak enough. I'll let you go, he says, so that you may sacrifice to Yahuwah in your wilderness. But now he's going to play games again. Just uh, don't go too far away and uh, ask him about that. Entreat that, uh, that that's okay. Moshe said, Behold, I'll go out from you, and I'll entreat Yahuwah that the swarms of fly may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, his people, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Only Just don't let Pharaoh deal deceitfully anymore. We, we've had enough of your uh, going back on your word and not letting the people go to sacrifice to Yahuwah. So Moshe went out. And he entreated Yahuwah as he had said he would. And Yahuwah did, according to the word of Moshe. He removed these swarms of flies from Pharaoh, all his servants, people. Not one remained. Guess what? Pharaoh stubbornized his heart. He made it kabod this time, too. He didn't let the people go. He could be a... Uh, he, he, I guess he's a king. He could be a president. He could be a, a congress critter. Uh, he goes back on his word. He, he seems to have everything it takes to be a, a politician... Uh, what, today, yesterday, tomorrow, uh, certain things never change. Nothing new under the sun. All right, then chapter 9. Now, this is the final chapter and the final set of the plagues we're going to see for uh, this first part of the, the three sets of three plus one. Yahuwah then says to Moshe, go unto Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says Yahuwah, Elohim of the Hebrews, let my people go so they may serve me. Because if you refuse to let them go, then you'll still hold on to them. Behold, the hand of Yahuwah is upon your cattle, which are in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, the herds, the flocks, and there is going to be a really grievous thing happen, a moraine. And Yahuwah, again, is going to put a wall of separation, a division between the cattle of Egypt and the cattle of Israel, and there will be nothing die of any that belong to the Benai Israel. So, Yahuwah, again, appointed a set time. Anybody want to guess? Tomorrow. Yahuwah will do this thing in the land. And on the morrow, he did, exactly as he'd said, and all of the cattle of Egypt died. But of the Benai Israel, not one. Pharaoh said, Behold, there was not so much as one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. But, it says here, the heart, the lev of Pharaoh was kabod. It was stubborn. And he didn't let the people go. So Yahuwah this time said to Moshe and Aaron, Take yourself handfuls of soot from the furnace. And let Moses throw it heavenward in the sight of Pharaoh. He's going to watch and see what you do. That dust shall become small dust, and it'll spread over all the land of Egypt, and it'll be in. It'll end up being boils breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Okay, uh, Think of it as like whole body hemorrhoids or something. Um, blains, boils. Sounds pretty unpleasant. They took the suit of the furnace. They did what they were told. They stood before Pharaoh, threw it up towards the heaven, and it became a boil, breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. Now, the magicians this time around, uh, doesn't sound like they could duplicate it, but the reason was because they were dealing with their own boils. They couldn't even stand before Moshe because the magicians were covered with boils, and all the Egyptians indeed were. So now... After five examples of essentially uh, what can be done, and have uh, having had Pharaoh decide to make his heart strong, and then finally stubbornize it too, this time Yahuwah takes over. So he has had his chance, and that chance is now behind him. His die is cast. All right, uh, a friend of mine likes to say, uh, you know, it's kind of like dancing with the bear. You decide to dance with the bear, and you've made your, your bed. You're going to lie in it. The bear decides when the dance is over. And that's where we're at. So Yahuwah this time, for the first time, he now makes Kazak 
he strengthens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh doesn't cave because he uh, obviously knew Pharaoh had about had it. He would have caved on his own. And he did not hearken to them, though, after that, as Yahuwah had spoken unto Moshe. So Yahuwah this time uh, says unto Moshe, Rise up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahuwah, Elohim of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time around, I must send all my plagues upon your heart. Uh, the, the word is there, uh, lelev, literally upon your your hearts, and um, some renderings say upon your person. This is gonna this is gonna hit really close to home. Upon your servants, upon your people, so that you may know there is no one like me, nothing like me in all the earth. Now surely now I'd put forth my hand and smitten you and your people with pestilence, and you'd been cut off from the earth. In other words, I, I have given you your chance, but in very deed for this cause have I made you to stand. To show you my power. So you, you want to know why your heart has been strengthened? Because now, you know, now you're going to see. Now you're in. You're in for good. To show you my power, and that my name, Shemi, might be declared throughout what? Kol Ha-Eretz. Bekol Ha-Eretz. Throughout all of the earth. One more time. What we're seeing here clearly is this is about his name being declared. And... Again, the fundamental understanding, Ani Yahuwah. I am. Remember, by uh, by this name, I did not make myself known unto the patriarchs, Abraham, to Isaac, and to uh, Yaakov. But now, oh yeah, now he is making that name known. He is demonstrating something. And and that's part of the, the fundamental truth that's being that's being played out here. So, as you exalt yourself yet against my people, why won't you let them go? Behold... Tomorrow, yeah, we knew that. Tomorrow about this same time, it's going to rain. I'm going to cause a very grievous hail. Such has not been seen in Mitzrayim since the day it was founded, up until now. So therefore, send, hasten. I'm giving you a warning, in other words. Bring in all your cattle, everything you have in the field. Every man and beast that's out in the field, when this happens, they're going to die. Anything that's not inside, he's in a whole heap of trouble, and they will die. He that feared the word of Yahuwah among the servants of Pharaoh... There were people listening, right? When Moshe speaks, um, people listen, like the old E.F. Hutton commercial. Only this time, um, you know, the word of, of uh, Yahuwah is obviously a lot more important than a, than a TV ad. Um, those that are understanding, those with eyes to see and ears to hear are saying, yeah, I, I'm starting to get the message. When Moses says, and when Yahuwah warns, get them inside, I better do it. So they did. Those that brought their, their animals and their servants in, and made them flee into indoor places, um, they were saved. As for those that didn't regard the word of Yahuwah and left his servants and his cattle out in the field, oh, they died. Yahuwah said unto Moshe, Then stretch forth your hand towards the heavens, Hashemayim, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, upon man and upon beast, upon every herb of the field, throughout the land of Egypt. Moshe stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and Yahuwah sent thunder and hail. And fire ran down upon the earth, and Yahuwah caused that hail upon all the land of Egypt. Now, as I listen to this, I'm going to point out something that uh, I tend to emphasize this a bit different every pass through, because there's so much here. There are so many patterns and repeating patterns that um, it's it's kind of fun to go into detail and study them uh, uh at, at some length, and given that this is a fairly lengthy Parsha, uh, we don't have time to do it in the detail that I think it should merit. But it's interesting and I think most everybody that's been listening and, and uh, has been through the Torah a couple times probably understands this. But each one of these plagues is being visited by the real Elohim against the fake Elohim. 
the fake gods. The Nile River they held up as a god. And they got, uh, you know, frog worshiping and all these other things that are going on. So, so pick a thing that they called a god, and essentially what you have is a creator holding it up and saying, ha ha, you think this is a god? Let me show you. A, I'm going to make you sick of it, and B, I'm going to show you it's not a god at all. Now, what was interesting about this particular plague is that both uh, fire and ice were considered gods and symbols of gods, and they were considered to be, by the Egyptian mythology, they were considered to be at war with one another. Right? Fire and ice were enemies. And yet, how is it? Answer, this is a real god making a point. How is it fire and ice are going to come out of the same storm? So there was fire and hail. Flashing up amidst the hail, lots of fire, lightning. Very grievous, such as not been seen in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. So the opposing gods battling it out, but the real God is making his point. Ki ani Yahuwah. The hail smote throughout the land of Egypt, all of it. Everything that was in the field, both man and beast, uh, died. He smote every herb of the field and broke every tree that was out there. Only though up in the land of Goshen, right, where there was that land, that uh, that distinction that was being made, that separation, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. So Pharaoh sent, he calls for Moshe and Aaron, he said to them. Now, this sounds like, uh, uh, I guess it sounds a little bit like uh, what we'd find in, in the whore church, right? A little bit of repentance. I'm sorry. I've sinned. I won't do it no more. Except for what? That's not true. I've sinned this time, he said. Yahuwah, he is righteous. He is uh, Zadikah. And I and my people, we're the wicked ones. Sounds like he's gotten it, but we know what's going to happen, don't we? So entreat Yahuwah, and we've had enough of this. Let this be an end to these mighty thunderings and hail, and I'll let you go. You don't have to stay anymore. Moshe said to him, as soon as I'm gone out of the city, I'll spread forth my hands unto Yahuwah. And when we're out of the city, right, the thunders will cease. There won't be any more, so that you may know that the earth is Yahuwah's. Now, as for you and your servants, I know. I already got the answer. You are not yet going to fear Yahweh, Yahuwah Eloheka. And the flax and the barley, it says, were smitten because the barley was in the aviv, or in the ear. The barley was in the phase where it's almost uh, ready to um, be harvested. The flax was in bloom. But the wheat and the spelt, they were not smitten. They survived because it was early. They ripened later on. So this is telling us something that is going to pan out and be important, obviously, when we get to uh, memorializing this via the Passover. So Moshe went out of the city uh, from Pharaoh. He spread forth his hands unto Yahuwah, and, just as he promised, the thunders and the hail ceased, and um, the rain was not poured out upon the earth. This all sounds pretty good. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned some more. He went back on his word yet again. Oh, guess what? And hardened his heart, he and his servants. So he hardened his heart. And the heart of Pharaoh, in fact, was hardened. Now, notice in this case we're going to get he made his heart stubborn. And then it says the heart of Pharaoh and his servants, it was, in fact, um, made chazak, strengthened too. And nope, he didn't let the children of Israel go exactly as Yahuwah had spoken by Moshe. So uh, there are several interesting contrasts in here. And by the way, that is the last portion uh, of the portion, uh, the last portion of the Parsha. It ends at the end of chapter 9, and we're going to see the final plagues in the, the Parsha next week. But I do think that it's, uh, it's kind of uh, important to summarize 
what what we're seeing in here this this whole idea of by my name Yahuwah, I did not make myself known to them even though his name appeared 165 times in Genesis and he did he did at least um, tell Abraham and Yitzhak his name they heard it but he did not do whatever it is he's doing here well what is he doing he is not only making his name known he is demonstrating something that is really key. Now, I, uh, I like some of the uh, the sages and the midrash that you'll see about this. And essentially, what does that mean? And, and here is a way that I've seen it phrased that I think is really uh, pretty uh, apropos. Uh, never before had any of the fake gods done anything even remotely like what the real one true God is doing here. And that's the following. He is making my name known, as he said. And he is literally intervening in history. So up until this point, you've got gods of the harvest and gods that are, you know, going to help make it rain or whatever the case may be. But here is a creator of the universe coming to manifest himself. You will know my name. You will know Kiani Yahuwah. And he is literally doing a new thing. He is intervening in history. And um, what he is showing here, if you will, is uh, uh, keeping faith as well. I made a promise. I am keeping the promise, and even to the extent that that means intervening in history and uh, at least giving the appearance of even circumventing what have been called the uh, the natural laws, the laws of nature. So a fascinating element, and I think if there's anything that we uh, we should take from this, it's this understanding of how vitally important it is to know what it means when he says, Ki ani Yahuwah. This is the promise-keeping, covenant-keeping Elohim who has a name that represents his character of keeping faith and honoring his promises to the point where he changes history itself. Or more accurately, intervenes. So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come. Judge Babylon, so come out of her. Bokertosh, welcome back. Good morning. Let's talk about the Parsha called Vayera. This is the second uh, portion in the book of Exodus, or Shemot. And arguably, it sets the tone for um, the whole book in terms of the key phrase. And uh, I'm going to suggest, as does the book, that this is the key phrase to understand not just the Exodus itself, but so much of all of Scripture, especially when it comes to things like prophecy. And uh, I want to make sure that uh, I'm careful today as I go through this. I know that a lot of the regulars here will understand uh, where I'm headed and why it is I'm going to do certain things. But for those that are new or for those that uh, hear this as a podcast later, uh, I want to make a couple things clear up front. And uh, so I'll do all of that. But let's let's introduce it again just briefly. The Vayera part comes from the first unique word, which is in Exodus 6, 2, where it says, uh, Moshe, um, Elohim spoke to Moshe, or, and, and he said to him, here it is, Ani Yahuwah, I am yod heh vav By the way, so we are clear, uh, I am the Lord is not an underscore exclamation point. It is not what it really says in the scripture as written. It says, I am yod Hey vav Hey, the Tetragrammatron, uh, Y-H-V-H, sometimes you'll see it. That's a heck of a lot more accurate than replacing it with capital L-O-R-D. And uh, we'll come back to some of the specifics on that in a second. But again, that's what he says. That is the essence of why this is so important. Yahuwah spoke to Moshe. He said, I am Yahuwah. 
Now, here is the thing that really separates this Parsha, and I think begins to um, uh, kind of indicate where it is I want to go in some detail today. And I appeared, so Vayera, there's the Parsha name, Vayera, unto Abraham and Isaac, or Yitzhak, and unto Yaakov, as El Shaddai. In other words, the name that they were most likely to associate with me was El Shaddai. Uh, King James calls it God Almighty. That's not quite as much of a misnomer as taking his name out completely and putting something else in. But on the other hand, what it really means is El. Okay, that's that's the word that is the real name for the uh, the entity, the creator. Um, and then Almighty, okay, that's not too bad. But El Shaddai is uh, more like the all-sufficient El. That's the way I always like to see it rendered. And um, I think that gives us a better understanding. Uh, he was, in fact, what they needed. He was all-sufficient. So, if you will, the key here is that his name is describing his character, and in particular, an aspect of his character as he presented it to them, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the patriarchs. And what he's saying here is, I got something else. I'm now going to do a new thing, a different thing than has ever before happened, and that is key, and that's what's being laid out here. So, he puts it this way, by my name, Yahuwah, uh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, as I mentioned, it turns out that the name Yahuwah appears 165 times in the book of Genesis. And in fact, uh, twice, specifically in Genesis 15 and again in Genesis 28, he appears to Abraham and he says, I am yod So it's not true that he never, ever... Um, used that name, that they were unfamiliar with it. What is true is that by that name, by my name that I'm now going to make manifest, and you ain't going to uh, have any doubts about it, by that name I did not make myself known to them. I didn't express what I'm getting ready to express the way I'm getting ready to express it. So that's the key. Again, he also said the same thing to Yitzhak. Now, Rashi puts it this way, that essentially um, he is a covenant-keeping L, and he is about um, keeping faith. So what he is saying here is, look, I made some promises. My word does not return void. We know that from many places in Scripture. When I say something, I will do it. And here we're going to see he is going to do it. He's going to, uh, he's going to express and demonstrate aspects of what that name, in terms of his character, means that have never been expressed before. But he is going to, uh, as we go through it and see it, we're going to see that he dots the I's and crosses the T. There are going to be things that we go, why is he doing this? Answer, because he said he was going to. And now he is. Now, there's another way that you'll hear the sages refer to what we're watching unfold here, and I think this is a really uh, wonderful way to put it. Never before on planet Earth had any of the so-called Elohim, right? That's a plural, and when it's used to describe fake gods, the mighty ones, uh, the sons of the Nephilim, or so uh, other entities that have claimed to be gods, or that men just said were gods, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, the god of the harvest, the god of this, or the god of uh, Baal, and uh, various lords, and by the way, the adversary, and of course the... Um, fertility goddess, Ishtar, Easter, and, and so forth. Um, none of those are real gods. And what this one true god is going to show and demonstrate why his name means, I am that I am, or more importantly, I will be that I will be. Oops, wait a second. I actually have a, another understanding I'm going to lay out today, and I'll just uh, throw it out so that we can hear it now. It is more like, I think, this, because what he's saying is, put, put any tense you want in there, right? Pew, Past tense, future tense, present tense, I am. 
I am, I was, I will be. But here's the uh, the thing that I think is kind of fascinating, and I'm going to suggest, and we'll go through some of the, the prophetic elements today. I'm going to suggest it's not just I am that I am, or I will be what I will be, but I will be what I am. All right, I, I like that formulation. I'm going, to, I'm going to suggest it one more time. Think about it as we go through everything else we're going to talk about today. I will be what I am. Because he is the perpetual I am. Uh, every moment is simultaneously uh, existent, in other words, in terms of the way he sees things as being outside of time. So, yeah, that's kind of a difficult concept, I know, to wrap our heads around. But I think one good way to at least begin to do so is to think about the phrase, I'm not just I am what I am or I will be what I'll be, but I am, yes, and I will be what I am. All right. So, again, the, um, the, es- the essence of that is this creator, unlike the, uh, the so-called gods of the, uh, the heathen, he is just about to show that he intends to intervene in history. He is going to um, mold history to the way that it was supposed to be. In other words, he knew the end from the beginning, and here he is demonstrating how that is going to come to pass. The reason why that's important, the reason why his name is important, and understanding his character as an aspect of that, I will suggest is because we're going to see it too. He will be what he is, and I believe we are living in such a time as this because we're going to see that. We're going to see aspects of that play out. So... um, Again, to, to summarize and then to kick things off from there, Genesis 6, uh, chapter 2. I didn't make myself known to them by this name, Yahuwah, but by, um, and what's, what's yada mean? That, that root word to know, to know, yada, yada, yada. I didn't make myself known experientially. They heard the name, okay? Yep, they, they heard it. But I'm going to show you. You are going to know it intimately at a gut level what it really means when I say I am and my name is yod Hey vav Hey. It's a new thing that he is fixing to do. Now, here's the question that I really want to focus on, and uh, this is why I said I was going to introduce it and, uh, and lay out a caveat or two, because I'm going to ask a question, and uh, sometimes people tend to get all wrapped around the axle about this. Oh, you got your vowel pointers wrong. It's not this, it's that. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll divide fellowship over you mispronounce the name, or it's a yod instead of a, you know. That's not what I'm referring to. In other words, this is not merely about pronunciation. Uh, yes, I do think there is something, and I'll share it in a little while, that uh, is probably, to my mind, the uh, best pronunciation that we know of, and I'll tell you why I think that's the case. If you don't buy it, if you don't think that that's a, a cogent or a, a really compelling argument, that's okay. Uh, again, that's not the kind of thing I, I want to break fellowship over or would suggest anybody do. But I do believe his name is important. I believe it's vitally important because it is a representation of his character, and that is, in fact, the whole point of what he is doing here in Exodus. He is a covenant-keeping L. His character is, if he says it, he will do it. We should know that. And one of the reasons why I'll start off on this trend of saying, oh, yeah, here, here are reasons we need to understand this. If you recall, at the, um, at the end of last week's story, we have Pharaoh himself. Right, who is going to be in for a penny, in for a pound in this one. He's going to find out that uh, what he didn't know is going to hurt him. And he said it to Moshe when he's first introduced in, uh, in the story. And uh, Well, not the first time he's introduced in the story, but the first time he's introduced in the story to what really matters in the story. 
He says, and this is pretty much a quote uh, translated into English, Who is this Yahuwah? <laughs> I know him not. I do not yada this, uh, this God. Now, there's an element of haughtiness in there. There's an element of ignorance in there. But what there also is is an element of finality in there. Because, you know, if you remember the line from Yoda uh, in uh, one of the Star Wars movies, You will! You will! And that's the point. When he says a knee, Yahuwah, Pharaoh will know. You betcha. Pharaoh is going to know. Maybe the last thing Pharaoh really, really learns. So, even Abraham, uh, while he heard the name, and Isaac, while he heard the name, didn't know it, if you will, in the same sense that Pharaoh is fixing to. There's, there's some ir- ironic um, understatement in, uh, in looking at the, the, enti- the totality of, of Scripture. Now, what I want to do at this point is to suggest that there are a lot of things about the name that he tells us are important, because he repeats this idea over and over and over again. Uh, for example... When, in the process of the next few books, he gives a commandment. We can tell that it's important. How? Well, because it's in, it's in the scriptures, and he wrote it down. That's one way of knowing it's important. But wait a minute, there's another way, too. I, I sometimes call this the signature line. In other words, he'll say, uh, do this or don't do this, and then right below that it says, ki ani Yahuwah, or I am Yahuwah your L. Okay, variations, but the key is those words ani Yahuwah. I am yod Hey vav Hey appear below so many commandments that it's almost shocking if we think about it. So, uh, just to kick things off again and, and set the stage here, understand the following. Now, most folks have heard this. This is probably not going to surprise any of the regular listeners. If you look for yod Hey vav Hey, uh, the so-called Tetragrammaton, his name, and um, the name that is often pronounced, I, I think the correct pronunciation is Yahuwah. I know people will say different things. That's okay, again. The key is that the name, the Tetragrammaton, appears in Scripture over 7,000 times. And interestingly, they um, largely took it out of the so-called New, called, the so-called New Testament, uh, even though I think it was used many, many times there as well. And um, just so you know, there's, there's a cute story. I actually saw a, um, uh, some ancient literature at one time uh, that was written in Greek, and it was uh, some, uh, some scholars looking at some of the Greek literature and saying, uh, this is how mistakes happen. Okay? If, you, if you have some understanding of the characters, and remember that the ancient Hebrew characters and the modern are a little bit different, matter of fact, a lot different. Uh, likewise, there are Greek characters, and um, in, in Hebrew, yod he vav he, if you write that out in the modern uh, Hebrew, uh, it looks a little bike like a pi pi. There's slight differences, but if you're if you're looking faster, you think maybe that's a scribal notational error. Uh, you could be forgiven for thinking that uh, to a Greek um, writer and reader, it might look like pi pi. So literally, and remember, they read it in the other direction. It's read from uh, uh, right to left in Hebrew, but from left to right in Greek and in English. So what does that mean? Well, it means that there were actually Greek scholars and people that had nothing except the access to the Greek manuscripts that thought the name of the Hebrew god is Pi Pi or Pee Pee. Uh, and and uh, then they got transliterated. And so, oh, wait wait a minute. I mean, there's an error for real, right? We took something that was in one language and tried to transliterate it and pronounce it in another language. And, and it even reads in the opposite direction. No wonder these things get messed up. So for all of those reasons, in other words, I think it's important that we understand that uh, his name has been hidden. Whether it was by accident or by a translational error or by just ignorance, 
Again, it is true. His name was in the book, is in the book over 7,000 times. In almost every case, you'll find in modern English Bibles, King James, New King James, uh, NIV, and so forth, it's going to be turned into capital L-O-R-D. And if you doubt that, you can take up the uh, the frontispiece of your Bible. Read, usually it's page, you know, I-I or I-I-I-V uh, uh, or something like that. And it'll say in there, hey, for purposes of um, you know being consistent with uh, historic practice, we have taken the Tetragrammaton, yod heh vav in Hebrew, and we've removed it and we've put in the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's, that's what you're going to see in this book. And I will contend that's just plain wrong, 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 because there are so many places where he says they will know that my name is not the Lord. They'll know what my name is, because I've been telling them. And they've taken it out all these thousands of times. So a couple more ideas here to, to trot out just, just to set the stage. Ani Yahuwah, the phrase that is the key, uh, that appears here, and it appears over and over and over again in the, the book called Exodus. As a matter of fact, that, um, that phrase, Ani Yahuwah, appears 17 times in this one book. I will, uh, you will know, Moses, uh, all of Egypt will know, Pharaoh will know, all of my people will know, Israel will know, Ki Ani Yahuwah. So 17 times in Exodus alone. But wait a minute. Turns out, remember I said it's a signature line too. And there are commandments that are given. And uh, he will often put that signature line. Ani Yahuwah, right underneath of it. Well, for example, in Leviticus, that same phrase, Ani Yahuwah, appears 54 times. But it looks like the uh, the champion in uh, the scripture is the book of Exodus, the prophet. I'm sorry, the book of Ezekiel, the prophet where, in fact, it appears, that phrase appears, not just the name, but the phrase, Ani Yahuwah, fully 66 times. So one of the things that is characteristic of the prophets, and they basically all, one way or another, uh, either say it explicitly, which makes it easier to find, or they say it in, in phrases that essentially say they're, uh, you know, there's going to come a time when people are going to know it, and I'll mention some of those today. And... Um, over and over again, that is a key, and it's a key element of prophecy. So if it's if it's Isaiah or it's Jeremiah that says, you know, at this time they will know that my name is Yahuwah, maybe if we're in a prophetic time frame, we might start thinking about wanting to know that. So where I'm going to go today as we go through this is, is a couple of... Um, Specific prophecies, a couple of specific places. I laid out some of the, the elements here, the, the idea of the signature line and the number of times, but I think it's more illustrative to actually look at some of the prophetic things that are um, perhaps on the near horizon. Now, one of them you'll hear a lot of talk about of late is Ezekiel chapter 38, the so-called Gog-Magog War. As uh, a lot of you, probably all of you are aware, uh, as of Friday, why, the Biden Fuhrer and the U.K. and uh, those that are pulling the strings of the prime minister and certainly those that are pulling the puppet strings here decided that having set out the bait and enabling the attacks of all of these Houthi rebels upon various uh, carrier groups and so forth, okay, so now, it's, now it's time to go ahead and do what we were, were jonesing to do anyway. Let's kick up World War III to the next gear. We'll see how that takes off. But certainly um, we had a missile attack, a rain down on Yemen, and a lot of things. Uh, was it justified? Well, that's the beauty of it. If you basically, you know, point to your face, you say, here I am, hit me, hit me, hit me. Give me your best shot, right? Here I am, just you, lily liver, bloody, bloody, blah, hit me, hit me, hit me. Eventually, you're going to see that uh, Russia, if you poke the bear, they'll poke back. And, uh, yep, if you hang things out, you can maybe get Hezbollah or uh, Iran to, uh, to hit you back, too. Because the goal here, and let's not kid ourselves, is world war. 
Who's at fault? That's not the point. The point is Scripture has warned us that we are, we're on the very brink of that. So let's look at some of the things that it says. And I think this is the part that's really interesting. So, uh, we talk about the Isaiah, or pardon me, the, uh, the Ezekiel 38-39 war. If you've got your, your Bible handy, turn to that and we'll take a quick look at, I won't go through the entire chapters in the war. And my point here is not to go talk about military strategies and, uh, you know, uh, Gog and how all of that's going to play out and what it looks like and who the various players are. Uh, I think in hindsight it'll be more obvious than it is because people have speculated about this, as you're probably aware, for uh, centuries, if not longer. But here's, here's how it starts, anyway, in Ezekiel chapter 38. I know i got a bookmark in there. Here we go. Now, the word of Yahuwah came to me. Notice, there it is. The word of, not the Lord, the word of Yahuwah came to me. This is Ezekiel the prophet speaking. And these, therefore, would be words in red. If you've got a Bible that puts his words in red. Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog. What does that mean? The land of Magog. Well, it's not Gog and Magog. This is Gog of Gog. Okay, so the um, the king of the land that is basically named for him, so that's what Magog, that prefix in Hebrew means, of the land of Magog, prince of, of um, Rosh, head, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And it says the following. Here's what Yahuwah says. Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I'll turn you around. I'll put hooks in your jaws, lead you out in your army, your, your horses, your men, all of them splendidly clothed, whole lot of folks with bucklers and shields, all kinds of guys handling swords. In other words, a, a military array par excellence, and he goes through all this stuff and describes who, who these people are. You know, does that mean that this was an ancient stuff and this already happened? Well, there certainly have been people that suggest elements of it, right? Uh, history, like prophecy, may not repeat precisely, but it rhymes. So be ready, he says. Uh, there's going to come this day when um, all that pass through you will arise in your mind, and they'll make an evil plan, and they'll say, hey, I'm going to go up against this wall of unwalled villages, peaceful people who dwell safely without walls, having neither bars nor gates. Now some will say, oh, does that sound like America? Take plunder, um, and then... Um, well, bad things are going to happen. They've acquired livestock and goods. Uh, they have been gathered from the nations. Well, again, a lot of this sounds like America. Whether that's true or not, the point I want to make here has to do with the elements of prophecy that are associated with an understanding of his name, because that's really what I want to focus on. It'll come to pass, it says about the um, 18th verse in the chapter, at that time, when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says Yehuah Eloheka, I, my fury, will be shown up. In other words, it'll show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, I've spoken. I've said, surely in that day there will be a great earthquake in Eretz, Israel, so that the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, beasts of the field, all the creeping things, all the men, they will shake at my presence. This sounds kind of scary. A great earthquake. Now, you know, when, when people look at this and they say, oh, let's speculate, what does this mean? And that's, that's not the point here. But again, uh, you can imagine, you know, a major nuclear war might be an earthquake that would shake the earth and be felt by men and birds and beasts and everything else all over the place. That's not the only explanation. I'm, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm just going to say, if you read this, there's a cataclysm here, which we can argue hasn't happened yet. The mountains will be thrown down. Steep places will fall. Every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says Yahuwah Eloheka. There's the name again. And listen to this. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Now, 
I can't help but think, you know, if you look at the world today, that has certainly been something that uh, the uh, the fake leadership of the world, the uh, people that infest the high places, if you name it, uh, well, I, I would just want to name all the capitals you can think of, right? Uh, pick some capitals in uh, in Europe. Uh, pick London. Pick um, most of the major cities in America, New York, and uh, certainly Washington, District of Criminals, and, and so forth. Every man's sword will be against his brother. We have seen the setup for that for quite a while. They are jonesing for civil war, for global war, for war, war, war on every hand that they can imagine or bring to pass. Now it says, I, here are the words in red again, I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I'll rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Now listen to this. Here's the line that I am reading because I think it really, well, it demonstrates the steam. Thus, I will magnify myself, and I will sanctify, I'll set myself apart, what, from these fake gods and from these leaders that represent them, the prince of this world, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. I will be known in the eyes of many nations. I I guess I can't help but think, if you look at a situation that prevails today, would you say that the God of the Bible is known in many nations? There may be a few people in a few places that know him, but as far as the leadership of those nations, I'd be hard-pressed to name any that I would say are following the one true Elohim and actually Yadai him, know him in that sense. And by the way, their fruit pretty well demonstrates that. But what does he say? I will be known in the eyes of many nations. And listen, then they shall know, ready? We know it, don't we? Ki Ani Yahuwah. I don't think it's happened yet. That's why I think this this uh, battle that we are, I won't say looking forward to it, but we know that it's in the future sometime, has not happened yet. Because while there have been times in the past when a nation or two, uh, perhaps those that were conquered by Israel, began to get a clue about him and understand what Ki Ani Yahuwah meant, to the extent that most of the world today cannot say, then they shall know that I am Yahuwah. I'm still thinking this is out in the future somewhere. All right, the um, the next chapter, chapter 39, is kind of a continuation of the story of the war. And he goes on to say uh, a lot of details. And this is the kind of thing people will uh, go through and pick apart and say, okay, here's what it might look like and so forth. For example, verse 6 of chapter 39, I will send fire on uh, Magog in the land, and that land, those who live in security in the coastlands, then they shall know. Ki Ani Yahuwah. So, he says, I will make my set-apart name known in the midst of my people, Israel. And I'm not going to let them profane my set-apart name anymore. What? You mean by taking it out and by saying that saying the words, God damn it, is, is uh, profaning his name? That's not even his name, folks. It's not even a title that really represents his name. It's an English uh, translation of a word that actually has been used to replace his name anyway. So I know people are offended by that, but the truth is, to profane his name is something different, and I can't help but think that taking his name out, and when you have a prophetic verse that says something like, uh, you know, my people will know that my name is Yahuwah, and a translator dares to say, let's hide that. Let's just put something else in there so that people will read this, and they won't have a clue what he's talking about. That comes a hell of a lot closer to profaning his name than saying the GD word does. 
Well, what does he say here? Again, verse 7, I'll read the whole thing, So, and I'll read it correctly, as opposed to the way they've mistranslated it. So I will make my set-apart name known in the midst of my people, Israel. Is that coal Israel? Is that the northern whoring kingdom, the whore church, or is it the southern whoring kingdom, the whore synagogue, or is it, in fact, all of those people, many of whom don't even know their identity? I think it's closer to the latter there, but we'll find out. I will not let them profane my set-apart name anymore. Then the nations shall know, Ki Ani Yahuwah, the Holy One in Israel. So um, is that too something that we are uh, yet to see? I, I tend to think so. From there, what I want to do is go through a couple of other prophetic elements that I will contend in, in each of these cases. We may see a little bit of uh, prophecy or history that rhymes, but no, has not come to pass yet. Uh, for example... Here is uh, one of them. This is from uh, the prophet Hosea. And uh, the last of uh, last part of, uh, of that book of that prophet. Now remember, Hosea was asked to take a wife of whoredom, Gomer. And he was asked essentially to, uh, to get a taste, and arguably it was, a, well, there were elements of it that were pleasant, certainly, but there was an element of it that was horribly unpleasant, and uh, he suffered essentially to make a point throughout history. Now, it ends like this. This is the uh, the 13th chapter of Hosea, and it's almost the end. Uh, chapter 14 is the last one. But it says this. When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. Now, uh, just to again remind us, what are we talking about here? Ephraim would have been the name of the line of the kings of the northern kingdom. So, Scripture also refers to Israel, the northern kingdom, that fell into apostasy and idolatry and was kicked out, and I will contend later became the whore church, the descendants, essentially, of the one true universal Catholic church that, what, changed times and seasons, changed his Sabbath, changed his Moedim, changed his rules about everything from food to marriage to you name it, except for fish on Fridays, which they changed back. All right, they offended this entire line, this thing that is often called Israel and is in exile, not only was, but still is. They offended through Baal worship, and he died. Now it says they sin more and more. They've made for themselves molded images, and uh, you know the, the details there. We can still see them. It's not hard. What does he say, though? Yet, oh, Here's a word we ought to be able to recognize. Yet, Ani Yahuwah Eloheka. I am Yahuwah, your El. Of course, they took that out of there and changed it so people don't get it. Ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no El but me. I'm the one. I'm the only one. You will know no other El but me. For there is no Savior besides me. Now, what's funny here? The salvation of Yah, we know his name, Yahushua, the prophet that described him, Yeshe Yahu. So the salvation of Yah is described by the prophet whose name means Yah is salvation. I knew you in the wilderness, says this prophet, Hosea, talking about the same individual. But notice, there is no Savior but me. What's the word in Hebrew there? Yasha. Same root word that we recognize in the name of the one who came to do exactly that which is described by his name. So, the name, again, represents the character. Is it important that we understand that his mama never called him Jesus? As long as we get the character right. So, um, you know, I, I will often say, understand that. His, his mama never called him Jesus. The name Jesus was not uttered by any of his uh, apostles, taught ones. 
They never called him that. They may have called him something more familiar, right? Uh, uh, somebody named William might get called Bill. We might have nicknames. We might shorten unofficial names. So Yahushua, uh, Yeshua, or something of that sort. But understand, there's no J in the Hebrew language. So at least in a physical sense, the name Jesus couldn't have existed until about 1600 and, and change. The first English Bible that puts a J in it is the 1619. Uh, there's a 1611 version too, but 1619 is the one most people are familiar with. Authorized King James Version. Prior to that, Geneva Bible, 1599, it was uh, Yashu. Or Yah. Anyway, the point is, it was usually spelled I-E, which was their way of uh, trying to, uh, to make that Yah sound. And uh, later on, the J was put in there. I suspect they pronounced it differently. We can't prove that, but um, the pronunciation tends to change less rapidly than the type fonts do. But again, the point. He has said here, you'll know no other L but me because there is no Savior besides me. And in the Hebrew there, this is unmistakable. It reads the salvation of Yah. That's who we're talking about. So we, we don't have any doubt if we just simply understand what it says. I knew you in the wilderness, it says, Mamidbar, in the land of great drought. When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Uh-oh. Therefore, they forgot me, he says. Now remember, this is the prophet Hosea speaking. And he has had to demonstrate through a life of sorrow and uh, and um being disappointed, I guess, by a wife of whoredoms, Gomer, exactly what it is that the Creator must, in fact, in a way that we can understand, be feeling about his um, whoring wife, and in this case it's two whoring wives, northern and southern kingdoms. They forgot me, he says. So, what's he going to do? Uh, answer. He is kind of PO'd. I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard. By the road will I lurk. I'll meet him like a bear, deprived of her cubs. Are we getting the picture here? He is not just P.O.'d. He is really, really angry. And these animals that devour prey and tear it limb from limb, three of them he just proceeds to name here. I'll meet him like a bear, deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their ribcage. There will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. Oh, Israel, he says. Northern whoring kingdom, walking in adultery. Oh, Israel. You are destroyed. That doesn't sound very good. I mean, it actually is one of those things that we can look and say, it has happened. Now, this prophet goes on to say that um, there will come a time when Ephraim will say, hey, what have I got to do any more with idols? Ephraim, northern kingdom, Israel. I've heard, I've observed him like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found, he says, in me. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of, no, not the Lord, Yahuwah are right. The Zadikim, those who are righteous, who know his instruction, they walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. So that's how that prophecy ends. And uh, from there, let's talk just a little bit more about, again, the key. Why is his name so important? I mean, if you think about it, why is his name so important that the adversary felt threatened by it? And he had his whore church and the translators who, maybe in ignorance or maybe because they didn't like what it really said, managed to gut it, take the importance of his name out of there 7,000 times. And if you read a lot of these verses that we're talking about today and many, many others too, because they are, they're, they're in there hundreds of times, where it says things like, they will know that my name is Yahuwah, and we don't. Well, we, we begin to get the picture. Oh, here's an example. Let's turn to uh, to Jeremiah 16.21. This is probably one of the uh, the easier ones to find, because you can just look up. Um, they will know, or I will cause them to know. Here we go. This is Jeremiah, again, chapter 16. 
verse 21. And as you know, I like to quote um, 16:19. Oh, you who are my strength and my fortress, the, my refuge in the day of affliction, the goyim, the nations, will come to you from the ends of the earth, and they'll say, hey, you know what? We've inherited lies. Surely our fathers, too, have inherited lies, worthless, unprofitable things, things basically that are, that are well, he said it, worthless. Will a man make gods for himself, which in fact are not gods? Okay, so how does that one end? Oh, got to love this. Therefore, behold, I will cause them to know. I will cause them to know. Pharaoh, he'll know. Kiani Yahuwah. All Israel will know. Kiani Yahuwah. The Egyptians will know. Right. He says, I will cause them to know. Is that us? I think the answer is yeah. I will cause them to know my hand and my might. And they shall know. Everybody say it with me. That my name, Shemi, in this case, is yod Hey vav Hey. Now, when you read that in the English, honestly, it, I'll, I'll say it as kindly as I can, it irritates me. Therefore, they shall know that my name is the Lord. What a crock. What an in my, a pitiful, lying crock. My name is not the Lord. They'll know my real name. I'm going to cause them to know by my hand, by my might. That my name is Yod Hey Vav Hey. Again, if he's going to cause us to know, I guess it must be important. Does it matter? Is it is he saying they will know the vowel pointers and they'll know how to pronounce it? Well, maybe, maybe that's part of it, but that's not the point. That's not the point of the story. That's not the point of the prophecies. That's not the point of his putting it in there seven thousand times. It's because there's something about it that represents his very character. The Elohim who is a keeper, a faithful keeper of his promises. His word does not return void. He intervenes in history. He is the El that we truly worship. You know, it's it's kind of funny. Um, and I've told this story before, but I guess it fits here. Um, and uh, one of my brothers is probably listening today. The other one's not. And I don't think he'll be embarrassed by this. It was quite a while ago. But I remember we were probably, um, I was probably a teenager. My uh, my younger brother is a couple years uh, younger. He might have been 10, 11 um, maybe a bit a bit older now, but my my grandfather in those days, his his name uh, was O H. He, he went by his initials, and uh, of course his last name was the same as mine. He was my uh, paternal grandfather, and he was an admissions counselor at Drury College in Springfield, Missouri. And um, so, um, but we always called him. We didn't call him by his name. Uh, we didn't usually even call him Granddad. Uh, I had a maternal grandfather, and sometimes we called him Granddad. But um, my Paternal grandfather, we, since I was a little kid, we called him Pop. His name was Pop. And when we went, you know, we're going to go see Pop, uh, and, and so forth. Well, anyway, so my little, my little brother, who was old enough that I was kind of surprised he didn't know Granddad's real name, but still, um, one day he had an occasion to call Drury College, and he called the central switchboard, and he says, Hello, I want to speak to Mr. Pop Call. And the woman says, What? And he says, Yes, I'd like to speak to Mr. Pop Call, please. He's my granddad. And finally, the woman says, do you mean O.H. call? And I was in the other room listening to this, of course, and I came in and I said, yes, yes, that's who he wants. <laughs> but he says, what? What's O.H.? All right, and, and so here's the funny part, right? And, and I think this kind of illustrates it, too. Do we not know him because we don't know his real name? Well, that's not the case. You know, my little brother, he knew his granddad. He knew his name was Pop. He knew him pretty, pretty well. 
He could pick him out of a crowd. He probably knew things about my granddad that a lot of people who knew him professionally and who worked with him at Drury College or who, uh, you know, were, were put into college by him and got scholarships through him didn't know. And yet, there is a case to be made that if you really know somebody, you ought to at least know their real name. Remember the line that I uh, like to mention on occasion where Yeshua says, you know, many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? Cast out demons in your name, do all these mighty works in your name. What will he say? Depart from me, you who are without instruction, you who walk in lawlessness, Torahlessness. I never knew you. I never knew you. I bet he still, that he knew their names, even if they didn't know his real name. So is it important? Yeah. Is it more important, and my little brother had this part right, that he knows the character of the man he's looking for? Yeah, but at least when it came to communicating to somebody else who he was looking for, he couldn't get it. That person very well might have hung up and said, I'm sorry, there's no pop call that works here. There is this one guy, he's got a different uh, you know, first name, all right? But the point is, again, um, it's important that if we really claim to yada him, to know him, we ought to at least know something that he says there will come a time when they will know. They will all know. Ki ani I will cause them to know. Well, clearly, at least prophetically, that hasn't happened because most still don't. Now, that leads me to the place where I think we're really going to see the rubber meet the road today. And um, in each of these cases, the next couple uh, that I want to talk about are from Yeshe Yahu. Um, Yeshe, the salvation of Yahuah. Now, you remember that one of the things prophets would tend to do is to take one or sometimes two, never all three, of the syllables from the name of the Almighty. And they would put that in their name, and they'd get added. For example, uh, Abram, he added the he, ha, from um, Yahuwah, and he became Abraham. And you have prophets like Yeshayahu or Yermeyahu and so forth. Well, here you go. Now, this is from chapter 42, where it says, Behold, my servant whom, I'm, uh, whom I uphold... My elect one in whom my soul delights, my servant. Hmm. Notice the King James capitalizes this. I put my ruach, my spirit, upon him. I'll bring forth justice in the nations, the goyim. So um, who are we talking about? Well, lots would suggest uh, this seems to be a discussion of the Mashiach. There certainly are other anointed ones. That's one of those terms, Mashiach, where um, we tend to think of there's one, ha-Mashiach. But remember, uh, Aaron was anointed, so the term would have been and was applied to him and others. Kings were anointed, so rightfully the term Mashiach would apply to them. But when it comes to the one that we're looking for, or that has been here and will return and so forth, and people discuss, uh, if you have uh, Orthodox Jews, he will come, and others would say, no, he's been here. But still, that term Mashiach means anointed one, and uh, it's important we get the understanding of who we're talking about from context. Okay. Thus says Yehuah Eloheka, who created the heavens, who stretched them out, who spread forth the earth, and that which comes from it, and, and so forth. I, Yehuah, have called you in obedience, in Torah obedience, in righteousness, in Zadekah. I'll hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the goyim. Now, King James translators capitalize the you, and suggest, and by the way, I think in this case it's probably an accurate rendering, they are referring to this servant who is going to come and who is going to do these things that we now recognize. Well, that the fellow whose name essentially says salvation is from Yahoo, the prophet's mission statement, describes, yep, this is who he's talking about. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Here we go. This line, at least. Hmm. 
It's funny how they'll pick some of this and say, oh, it's clear we're talking about Jesus right there. But then they'll take the sentence that is essence of all of this and twist it into non-existence. I am Yahuwah. That is my name. What's it say in the, I'll say it, the piss poor rendering here? I'm the Lord. That's my name. No, it's not. That's the thing that ought to really irritate us. I am the Lord. No, it's not. That's not what he said. He said, I am Yahuwah. That is Shemi, my name. And my glory I will not give to another. Do you see why this ought to be offensive? He's talking about my name. The name that I told you over and over and over again, 7,000 times in Scripture. The name that Exodus says 17 times. They will know. You will know. Egypt will know. Pharaoh will know. Ki and the Yahuwah. My glory I won't give to another. What are they doing? Oh, yeah, any Baal will do. Any fake Lord will do. Any God will do. we got a million of them. There's one and only one who is demonstrated to be, by his character, the one that uh, I will be what I am. Yahuwah. I won't give my praise to carved images either. Now listen to this. I'm going to suggest this is why this fits with exactly what we're talking about and why the name matters here. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things, he is saying through the prophet here, new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Isn't that exactly what we see in Exodus? Isn't that exactly what we see in the prophetic writings? Isn't even though... And this always fascinates me as a nerdy engineer. Even though the nature of his creation is cycles, cycles upon cycles, wheels within wheels, right? Patterns repeat. History doesn't necessarily repeat exactly, but it rhymes. And what we see is he has declared the former things, the latter things. He knows the end from the beginning. Uh, famously, I love Ecclesiastes where he says, hey, ain't nothing new under the sun. What has been is what shall be. But still, Yah, and through his understanding... I will be what I am, there are things, even though they have been declared, even though the cycles have shown us the pattern, there are still things we're looking forward to. So here we go. Uh, verse 10, and then uh, from here we'll move on, but I know you know this, and I, I think it's great. Uh, it, well, it's a song, right? Sing to Yahuwah. No, not the Lord. Sing to Yahuwah a new song, and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that's in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants in them, let the middle, the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, and so forth and so on. Let them give glory uh, to him. Who? Him? He? yod Hey vav Hey. His name. All right, from there... Uh, let's turn to um, the um, Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 6. And let me pull that up here. I got it. Okay, so Isaiah 56. This one's kind of interesting. The, um, the study Bible I'm looking at has a chapter heading. It says, Salvation. What? Yeshua. For the goyim, for the Gentiles. Well, I don't like the term goyim uh, being translated into Gentiles. Sometimes it fits because the connotation is Gentiles are usually pagans. Unfortunately, a lot of the lost tribes, people who were uh, once of Israel and then get scattered and they lost their identity and they became those lost tribes, ultimately went pagan too and they in, in fact did become Gentiles. But um, the point is, after they recognize their identity and they say, now I need to make Teshuvah, I need to return to him. Don't call yourself a pagan anymore. Hopefully you're not a pagan. This is why Paul wrote letters to people like in Corinth and said, you know, hey, I'm afraid that you might go back to the beggarly things. Put yourself under bondage again. No, not bondage to Torah, bondage to the laws that were written by these pagan gods. we got to understand the context. So, 
this is really salvation for the people who may have been pagans or Gentiles, and they were of the nations, and they were scattered and lost, and they didn't know their identity. But once they return to his salvation, Yahushua, it's a different deal, and that's the point. Thus says Yahuwah, it begins, keep justice. How do we know it? Because it's written in his book. And do righteousness, Torah obedience. Because, ready? Let me read this with the Hebrew understanding. My salvation. Yeshua T, the my suffix on the end, right? The the E ending. For Yeshua T, my salvation, is fixing to come. Now remember when this was written. This is the prophet Isaiah who foretells the salvation of Yah. Very name describes his job statement, his mission, his identity, his name. And my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold of it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Okay, now over and over again it refers to keeping my Sabbath. That's kind of interesting, of course, because those who have lost their identity and picked up Sun God Day and other things instead, uh, they don't understand why he said over and over and over again also, keep my Sabbath. Remember, set apart. Zakar, my Sabbath, my Moedim, my special appointed times, forever, throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places. As a uh, as another guy likes to say, not not till my son comes, then we'll we'll do away with. We'll have we'll have better things like Christmas and Easter instead. Uh-uh. Even to them will I give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Isn't that interesting? As, in fact, uh, those who have turned from him and gone pagan have cut off his name. Also, now this is where I think we're going to see the rubber meet the road. So it's Isaiah 56 that I was working up to, these uh, next couple of verses. Listen to this, and I want to, I want to spend a couple of minutes on, on some of the specific words in here. Also, it says, the ben, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to Yahuwah to serve him and to love the name of, no, not the Lord. What's the name of yod vav That's what it says. And to love the name yod vav to be his servants. So that's what we're talking about. But it says also we're going to include who? The sons of the foreigner. Now sometimes, this is not the case here, sometimes you'll see that word in Hebrew is ger, uh, a, a person who is outsider, a, a foreigner. And ger uh, shav. There's a lot of Hebrew words. A lot of, of rabbinic Jews will will understand. They'll talk about the ger a lot. Um, but in this case, the word here is not ger. It is actually um, nakar. So hanakar is the foreigner. Now, what's the slight difference? Well, this word actually does mean foreigner, but it also means alien, someone who is alien to him, and even heathen is uh, how it's sometimes translated in English. This word is used a number of times in the book. But So what it says, and, and let's get this in the right context here, also, so who, who are we talking about? We're talking about those who are his, and those who maybe didn't know they're his, but they should, and eventually they're going to figure it out, and they're going to return to him. Also, it says the sons of the uh, heathen, the alien, even them, yeah, who join themselves to Yahuwah, to serve him. Notice it's join themselves not to the Lord, not to any Baal, any fake God will do. Uh-uh. To the real one. That's why his name is important in this particular prophecy. Those who join themselves to Yahuwah to serve him, not any other Baal or Adonai or, you know, fill in the blank. And to love the name Yahuwah to be his servants. 
everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Now, right there, there's a place, and I know this is a verse you probably don't hear a lot in Sun God Day School. And, and guess why? Because essentially, it just disqualified most of the whore church. Because they're still in the whore church. They have still not gotten it. They have joined themselves to the Lord. I serve the Lord. Which Lord? Do you know his name? Do you understand his covenant? Do you understand why it was he said so many, literally thousands of times, that his name is yod heh vav heh Why he signed those things that you say don't matter anymore? Those commandments that you say are done away with? With Ani Yahuwah? You see, this is important stuff. And we really have to understand that, um, well, as Yeshua says, there's a, p- a path, and it's broad and wide, and it leads to destruction. Oh, yeah, and a whole lot of folks going to go down that road. Why do we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, according to Paul? Well, because Yeshua says the salvation of Yah, that's his job description, and what he came to do and who he is, he says, on the other hand, the path that leads to life is narrow, and few there be that find it. What, not everybody who just goes to church on Sunday and gets themselves dunked and says, I give my get-out-of-hell free card? There is obviously more to it. And here's a uh, here's a simple statement that, hmm, it just doesn't sit well with a lot of folks. You, you want to love the name Yahuwah, to be his servants. And then he tells us, among other things, this is not an exhaustive list, everyone who keeps from defiling my Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Now remember, these are foreigners. These are truly aliens he's talking about, but they too. If they want to be, as uh, you might have heard this metaphor somewhere, if they want to be grafted in, yeah, they can come, they can come to love his name. And what does that mean? Not how you pronounce it um, necessarily, but it certainly does mean what his character, what his name represents. Even then, he says, I'll bring them to my holy mountain and I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Let's read this next verse correctly as well. Yahuwah Eloheka, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says. Now, okay, now do we know what we're talking about there? Yeah, the outcasts of Israel. Yeshua, remember when he was asked by the woman, he's got a daughter, and he says, you know, will you heal my daughter? She's a Canaanite woman. And he says, nope, my, I, I have come but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is the Torah made flesh, the son of El himself, Yahushua, who says to this Canaanite woman, you know, I'm sorry, uh, but my my mission, I have come but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, these lost tribes of Israel. Now, what does she say? She says, well, you know what, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the master's table. What does he then say? <laughs> wow, great is your faith. And it says, and her, da- his, her daughter was healed from that very instant, that very hour. So, uh, yeah, these people... Those who will, come ye all who will, we can be grafted in. It is important that we understand the nature of the 12 tribes and the history, but what we also need to understand is that the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to Yahuwah to serve him and love the name, and by that the character, who he is, ki ani, you will know that I am Yahuwah. That's important. To be his servants. These things are among the things that they will do. But, again, the end of this section here, Yahuwah Eloheka, who gathers those outcasts of Israel, says, Yet 
I will gather to him even others, even those outside, besides those who are gathered to him. This is a wonderful and very inclusive statement. And it's, it's again, it's, it's the essence of understanding his name. His name is his character. Okay, now at this point, I've um, uh, got one more from Isaiah that I want to do in a minute, but I've got um, a couple, I, I won't call these digressions, but certainly things that I want to put on the table before we, uh, before we summarize another line from Isaiah that I particularly love. And um, we'll start with this one. This is Romans chapter 9, and this is the part that is said to go uh, uh, by most of the messianic um, uh, teachers and so forth with this particular Torah portion, Vayera, and the understanding of, well, first part of the Ten Commandments and what he has come to do, and he's doing a new thing and why his name's important. And um, also having to do a bit with Pharaoh. Poor Pharaoh, right? He doesn't have free will. Yeah, he does. Okay, so chapter 9 of the book of Romans... Um, and it begins that he says, you know, there's, there's those who are, um, they may be Israel, but they aren't necessarily those who keep the covenants, that those who keep his Torah. And um, so there are those who belong and those who don't, and, and that too is a choice. So what will we say then? Says uh, verse 14 here. That's where the official reading begins. What do we say then? Is there unrighteousness, Torah failure, failure to listen to Torah with Elohim? Oh, no, certainly not. Because he says to Moshe, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. That's a reference to Malachi. Um, and I've always thought that's an interesting line, because, you know, why Why do uh, good things happen to people who don't deserve it? Why was Paul on the road to Emmaus, and, uh, you know, uh, or Damascus, and then, and then you know, he, he has this stuff happen to him? He was such a bad dude, people couldn't believe it. Answer, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Sometimes he heals folks that we might think, why did he heal that one and doesn't heal this one? Because he's sovereign is, I guess, a simple answer. So then, this is Paul writing, it's not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but it's Elohim who shows mercy. Now, I wonder if they are taking his name out in these letters. Answer, yeah, we know sometimes because he would have used it a lot more frequently than most of what we see in the Greek would demonstrate. Uh, and I doubt he said PP either. Okay, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name, which name, the real one, yeah, might be de- declared, declared in kol ha'aretz, all of the earth. So therefore, he says, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You'll say then, well, why does he find fault? Who has resisted his will? Indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against Elohim? And here's the reference we've all probably heard about and remember. How about the clay? Does it tell the potter, Oh, I don't wish you would make me into a latrine or a urinal. I would rather be something like an ashtray. Uh, you know, No, the potter uh, decides what he's going to make into the clay. One vessel for honor, another for dishonor. What if Elohim, wanting to make his wrath known and his power known, endured with a whole lot of long-suffering the vessels of wrath... Right? The spittoons and the chamber pots that he had prepared for destruction. That he might make known the riches of his glory on those vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even as whom he called. Not only of the quote-unquote chosen people. Now some renderings say Jews, and I don't think that's actually the right rendering here. Uh, remember, there's all Israel, and there are those that are just Jews. Was Paul a Jew? Well, he would tell you, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He was in the land of Judea, 
And um, today, of course, when we use the word Jew, we have to be careful. It, it means different things in different contexts. And so that's why I say, read this, understand what he's talking about. Uh, not only of the Jews, but also of the Goyim. The English uh, NKJV that I'm looking at says the Gentiles. And okay, as you know, I've just explained, I, I'm not wild about that word, but it could mean the pagans. The implication is it does. And yep. I think it really does in this case. These are people who have lost their identity. Some of them are of the 12 tribes. Some of them are other pagans in the same places. They don't know who they are. So they are pagans. Did Yah provide for them? Does he have a plan? You betcha. Likewise, they had better make the choice. Then he quotes Hosea. And, of course, this is uh, the part earlier that I mentioned today. I think of this as one of the most poignant lines in Scripture. Remember that the prophet is told to name the three children that he has through Gomer the whore. And the names are uh, eminently tragic. I will call them... Okay, so the last child is, remember, his name is Lo-Ami. Lo-Not-Ami, my people. Imagine growing up with the name, not my people, to be symbolic of those who are not the people of the Creator. That's a tough that's a tough road to hoe, right? I will call them my people though, and this is the point. He will demonstrate that those who were in fact not my people are and can be. So I'll call them my people who were Loami, and I will call her beloved who was not beloved. And it'll come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. Here it comes, folks, and if I can read this without bursting into tears, I'll I'll try. In the place where they were called, Lo Ami, not my people. Instead, there they shall be called sons of the living Elohim. Israel all cries out. And it cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant, remnant is a minority, a small piece even, will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in what? Zadikah, righteousness, Torah obedience, understanding of his instruction, because Yahuwah will make a short work upon the earth. All right. And Isaiah also said the following, Unless Yahuwah Zavuot had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been made like Gomorrah. So his point, again, uh, I will save whom I will save. He goes on to talk about Pharaoh. What shall we say then? And and uh, we've already talked about this. I mentioned it last night. Pharaoh had a choice. For a while, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And not only that, there's two words that are used there. But he strengthened his own heart, and then he made stubborn his own heart. And he had a chance, and there comes a point at which the chance is gone. You blew it. And thereafter, right, he decided to dance with the bear. The bear decides when the dance is over. And the dance is only over when Pharaoh finally gets it. Oh, I now know Yahuwah. And it was arguably the last thing he ever understood. Okay. So um, from there, where I want to go is um, uh, one more quick aside. I promised I'd do this. So I don't want to forget it. And then we'll go back to uh, Isaiah chapter 56. Uh, you'll notice that um, I will often use the tetragrammaton. Uh, it is yod Hey vav Hey in the Hebrew, Y-H-V-H in the English. And uh, I've gotten to the point where if I see Y-H-V-H written down in English, and it's written from left to right in this case, 
I'll always read that as yod Hey vav Hey, even though it's Y-H-V-H. Well, it's just because by context we know that that is the Tetragrammaton. Uh, sometimes uh, it can be pronounced, and I have become personally convinced that the pronunciation that is the best is Yahuwah. Now, why? And again, I'll say it because it bears repeating. Do I break fellowship with people who don't like that? Uh, you'll, you know, Nehemiah Gordon, perhaps, who is a, a preeminent scholar at reading the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of the ancient writings. He, uh, he reads uh, ancient Hebrew. And, you know, I have trouble reading modern Hebrew, uh, with the exception of uh, one or two words like yod heh vav but regardless, uh, he concludes that the proper pronunciation, and this is the proper rabbinic pronunciation, is Yehovah. Now, I'll suggest right offhand, we know that his name is Yah, and I'll talk about some other reasons why we know that, but also um, we know that uh, Yahuda is the name of the tribe, and it is literally the tribe that whose name means the door into Yah. So... Um, if we understand that his name shortened is Yah, doesn't it make sense that Yehovah probably got the first syllable wrong? Eh, okay. So I'll just conclude that um, maybe there are other renderings. And, and understand this. Um, while um, uh, Nehemiah makes a good case that if you look at various uh, rules of grammar and rules of vowel pointing and so forth in Hebrew, that you come to the conclusion that's, that's the way it is. But understand as well that there were those who believed that the, uh, the goyim, the laity... Right, you had the same situation in the Roman pagan church as you had in the uh, the horse synagogue. Got to hide that name. Can't have these uh, these uh, lowly types mispronouncing it, taking his name in vain by not getting the vowel pointers right. So let's just hide it so they can't. I can't help but think when it comes to taking his name in vain, maybe that's where they ought to be looking in the mirror a bit. But regardless, uh, you can make a case, and I will, that they changed the rules of grammar specifically to hide the real pronunciation of his name. Can I prove that? Well, I think I can make a pretty good case, but I can't prove it. And, of course, here's the problem, and this is the way it was presented to me where I'm, where I'm headed briefly here. Um, it would be easy if we had a tape recorder, right? If we had an audio recording. And there are those that would say scientifically, hey, if you had enough information, you might be able to look at the rocks from the time. The very rocks and stones themselves would start to sing. They, they might be able to uh, go in and, and look at some rocks where the name was pronounced and recover it, as if it was by an ancient tape recording. Okay, could be. And certainly as, a, as an engineer, I would recognize there's at least a small but finite possibility that that could happen. As was pointed out to me, but we, we don't need that. We, in fact, do have a tape recording. Say what? And and this is the argument that I find as an engineer extremely compelling, because uh, you know part of my technical background was involved with coding theory and how do we um, put something in a form right so that we can record it on a tape or a disk drive or an optical drive and get it back intact with a very very high degree of reliability, uh, one chance in ten to the uh, sixth or ten to the twelfth of making an error. How do we do that? And the answer is, we look at statistics and we look at large amounts of data and uh, the math gets kind of gnarly. But bottom line is, it's possible. And there are some elements of the way that Torah has been recorded that actually demonstrate some of those techniques. It's very, very impressive and it, to me, proves why we know that his Torah has been preserved. But wait a minute, turns out that there really is an actual tape recorder too. Again, this is the argument and I find it compelling. So if you do, great. If you don't, this is okay. But it goes like this. Did you know there is one word... 
one word, and only one word, that appears in not hundreds, at least 600 known human languages of every origin on the planet. Semitic languages, uh, European languages, Asian languages, African languages, Angri- um, uh, Native American languages, which may or may not be related to Hebraic and Aramaic and, and other languages, because there are certainly similarities there. Um, but regardless, there are languages from different tribes and peoples all over the planet. They have no similarity. Their character sets are different. Their pronunciation is different. Cyrillic languages, right? And yet... In all of those languages, there is one word, one word which is spelled differently with different characters and yet always pronounced the same. All right, I'm looking for the screen. I bet it's going to be up there, but in case nobody's heard this yet, here it is. This is the word, folks. And even in English, you'll see it spelled three or four different ways. Ready? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. One of the most famous and most recorded songs in uh, in English history, is hallelujah. What does it mean? The word means praise ye Yah. Hallelujah. Praise ye Yah. Well, wait a second, right there. There is Yah right in the word. That word has been preserved in hundreds, well, at least 600 and arguably almost every other language that's been studied, and that's pretty much getting to be an exhaustive count, hallelujah has been preserved. So the creator of the universe somehow managed, I will suggest this doesn't happen by accident. Languages change, right? If they can change his name from yod heh vav in Hebrew to pp in Greek, well, you know, there's a lot of twisting that's been going on. Uh, we see how, you know, languages e- evolve and different sounds appear and disappear and so forth. Uh, that's, that's etymology and the study of words and linguistics. But it's amazing. Matter of fact, it doesn't happen by chance. Okay, this is the part where I'll put on my nerdy engineer hat and say, no, this, folks, is miraculous. It could not be. It simply is impossible. It's a physical impossibility that the word hallelujah would be in 600-plus human languages Unless there was a reason for it. Unless somebody maybe had a reason for preserving that particular word. Again, what does it mean? Praise ye Yah. Hallelujah. Okay, now here goes the little bit of a leap, but I, uh, I think it's a pretty compelling one. What's preserved in the pronunciation of hallelujah? Well, obviously, one, the first syllable of his name, Yah. We see that he is called Yah in Scripture. And we see that the name appears, and that there are uh, uh, Yeshe, Yahu. There are lots of prophets' names who preserve that exact um, pronunciation and uh, and um, character set. But wait, there's more. Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Take the vowel pointers, Le-u-yah, and put them in with Yod, He, Vav, He, and you get Yahu. Wow. So when I look at that and say, did he preserve, did he literally put a tape recorder for us in human language itself by which we can determine the pronunciation of his name? I am personally convinced. All right, so that is the way I will choose to pronounce it. Does that mean you have to and I'll break? No, it's not. All right, a lot of folks will say, well, that's an interesting argument, Mark, but uh, it doesn't resonate with me. Well, that's fine. That's okay. Maybe something else is more compelling. But regardless, the point is, we may or may not have a tape recorder that records his name and the pronunciation of it. 
But what's more important, that we absolutely have, we have his character recorded in his name. A covenant-keeping L who intervened in history, did a new thing, and says hundreds of times, Ani Yahuwah, this is my name. You will know it prophetically. We will know it. And it's beautiful, I think, that uh, he essentially is saying to us today, especially as we look at prophecy, I will be what I am. So with that, oh, okay, well, uh, I'm suggested that I tell the other piece of the story. turns out that there's, um, there's more to the story, and I was trying to make this quick. It's not quick anymore, but I'll do it since the question was asked. Um, I, um, I told this... Um, this um, exchange, I had this exchange with another fellow who uh, I admired and I thought had some pretty good scholarship. And he says, well, let me tell you my story, Mark. By the way, he pronounces the name almost identically. And he says, my reasoning is entirely different, but it goes like this. He says, over the years, I came to, uh, to, to s- decide to study various nurses. And maybe it was something that, you know, he, his, his uh, job or his... his um, uh, things that he was led to do, brought him into contact with. But he said, in particular, there's two main kinds of nurses that will have an opinion on this. One, hospice nurses. Okay, people that are at the last moment of somebody's life. They're at, they're at the hospice care. they got the poor bedridden individual who's fixing to breathe his last. And he says the hospice nurses would universally report that if you heard the death rattle, and if you heard the last breath of somebody, it sounded something like this. <gasps> and they were gone. And he said, it dawned on me, and it's dawned on many of them. The last word ever uttered by so many humans breathing their last is an unvoiced, and by that it means the vocal cords don't participate. It's just the intake and the outtake of breath, of ruach. Think about the implications there. And they're gone. Arguably, home to him who made them. All right, I found that beautiful, compelling. But it turns out, he says, yep, there's more too. Ask about the other end of life. The uh, the nurses that perform the duty of the midwives, or the midwives that aren't really even nurses, but they're midwives. And we saw this in last week's Torah portion, the midwives that were there in uh, ancient Mitzrayim. What happens when the baby breathes his first? You ready? <gasps> Okay, so the baby comes in kind of with a cry. (gasps) Welcome to the world. You've just said the name. Okay, anyway, I find that also uh, compelling. And yes, as I see on the screen here, the last breath is the first breath. And uh, is it any surprise then that the word ruach, that means breath, that means spirit as well, is uh, so intimately connected with his name? And what he breathed into us. I don't know. I find this all not just beautiful, but beautiful to the point of saying there's something really divine here that I just plain can't ignore. Okay, so yes, his name is so important. And uh, certainly he has given us all the evidence we need and all of the indications we need about how important it is. And even uh, if we choose to, uh, to look at it, perhaps a, um, a bit more as well. Okay, so with that, I said I would turn to Isaiah and uh, we'll go back to chapter 52. And it says, um, and this is quite an interesting chapter. Awake, awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, O holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. 
Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says Yahuwah. Now, this one too. Listen to this, and, and I will suggest, here's yet another one of those prophecies that um, I can't help but think ought to resonate with so many of us today when we begin to realize we are in bondage even if we don't know it. For thus says Yahuwah, you've sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall re- be redeemed without silver. I don't like the King James translation here where they say money. Yeah, silver is money. The word is kasef. You shall be redeemed without kasef, without silver. Now think about that. You've sold yourself for nothing. Uh, what is a fiat buck? It's nothing. It's money because some fake God says it is. The creator of the universe, and he signs this one too, you can look it up, he signs it and says, it's an abomination to me, dishonest weights and measures. You've sold yourself for nothing. This is exactly a statement of what is true about bondage to debt, to debt slavery, and to fake money that is in fact nothing. For my people went down at first. Okay, now think about this. In the metaphor that we're talking about, deliverance from Egypt, from Mitzrayim, and how the parallels here ought to leap off the page at us. My people went down at first into Mitzrayim, into Egypt, to dwell there. Then the Assyrians oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here, says Yahuwah, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them, he says, make them wail, says Yahuwah. Uh-oh. Here's where the, uh, the plot thickens, the rubber meets the road. And my name, he says, the name that they just took out right there in the line above, my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. My people shall know my name. Does it sound like it's important? There's a prophetic statement here. My people shall know my name. If his people don't know his name... Can what is getting ready to be prophesied happen? Well, not until they know his name, at least, right? That's kind of one of those tautologies. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that Ani, I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation. Yahshua, who says to Zion, your El reigns in the Malkut Shemaim, the kingdom of the heavens, right? Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they'll sing together, for they shall see eye to eye. When Yahuwah brings back Zion, break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahuwah has comforted his people. How can his people be comforted with a knowledge of his name and the understanding of these things if, if, if none of this has happened yet, right? This, again, is one of those things that I will contend clearly is a prophecy that we are, uh, well, I pray, not only going to see, but on the brink of understanding. He has comforted his people. Yahuwah, that's who's done that. He's redeemed Jerusalem. Yahuwah has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all coal of the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see, ready for this, Yahshuat, the salvation of our El. (laughs) You can't read it in the original Hebrew without saying, wow, he's just telling you exactly what it is. Here comes a verse that I quote frequently, and by the way, it's uh, it's paraphrased by the prophet Yohanan or John in Revelation. Depart, depart. Go out from there, 
Touch not the unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of Yahuwah. For you shall not go out with haste nor by flight, for Yahuwah will go out before you, and the Elohim of Israel will be your rear guard. So all of these, uh, I would say, wonderful prophecies and um, things that are truly worthy of understanding. But I guess, again, to kind of summarize the... um, the whole essence of this. And we're going to keep talking about it because the entire book of Exodus, essentially, uh, the conclusion of the, the last of the uh, the three sets of three plus one plagues, uh, that still lies ahead. Of course, the, uh, the comeuppance, the end of the Pharaoh and of his armies and all those things. Uh, Ki and Yahuwah, yeah, they'll know it. All of those things are out there. But again, this, this theme that as we go through the rest of this book is so important. It helps us to understand why his name is so important. Again, I think there is a, a way that we can look at and have some uh, insight into the vowel pointers and the pronunciation. Is that what's important? Well, arguably it is. But on the scale of things, what's important is that we know him. That we know his character. That when we say the God of the Bible, we know which one we're talking about. Because there's another one that's listed in there, right? He has names like Beelzebub. Or Hasatan, the adversary, he would call himself, and trust me, the world loves him probably more than they love the one whose name they have hidden and don't know and don't want you to know. So it is really vitally important that we understand that his name is his character, that he will be what he is. And what he is is all of these things that he's told us. He is our salvation. He is the Torah made flesh. He is literally that which has made history changed in so many ways, right? And we see that if we look at the places where he's changed history, this is one example, as you can very well testify, uh, there certainly are others. And here's the really cool part, folks. There is at least one, arguably, depending on how you count it, uh, more things to come. But there is certainly one major event that we're all looking forward to. And, and guess what? Those who keep his Sabbath, those who keep his Moedim, we will understand and be ready because we're looking for it. We even know when to look for it and what its characteristics are. Because his name, his character have told us. I do nothing but what I first declare my intentions through my servants, the prophets. Again, we have the information we need. And just like he preserved Hallelujah in all of those 600 plus different human languages with completely different origins, arguably, all the way back to a place you might have heard of in, in Babylon, a, a city, uh, Babel. But he kept one constant, consistent praise, ye yah, intact. And um, isn't that amazing? So if, if, there's, uh, if you take nothing else away from this other than why his name is so important, uh, also recognize that there is a miraculous element in here, too, that we can use as a witness not only for ourselves and for understanding some of these things, but for those that would say, oh, no, well, why would I believe this old book? Why do I believe this really is his word? Answer. Okay, uh, my, my testimony is, in fact, uh, in part at least, as a nerdy engineer, that when you see the things that simply could not possibly be Well, like a human eyeball, like a human DNA strand, like a bird in flight. These things don't happen by random chance and mutations over billions and billions of years. They happen because of an intelligent designing hand who created these things for his purposes. And he created us and he breathed his ruach, his spirit, our lives, our nefshim into us for a purpose. Arguably it's his purpose.
and all of the pieces fit. And, and that's the thing that really testifies to me of the glory and the divinity of his word and his scripture is how perfectly the pieces fit. And when we see it and when we recognize his name and his character, it testifies to who he is. And uh, may it be so. So with that, I guess what I'll say is, uh, do we have any comments or questions? Uh, let me see if I can go through them here. got comments. Um, I'm, I'm, I was told to take a look at MP's comment from 42 minutes after the hour. Uh, Yahuwah, as the baby's first voice, could be the spirit of the newborn calling out to his or her Yah, who he or she suddenly misses. Hence the scream. Uh, yeah, uh, no other way can they make their displeasure known. Uh, of course, they, in many cases, they just got whacked on the, the bohinkus. So that could be part of the displeasure. <laughs> I, I hear yeah, and I think it's, it's great. I, I tend to think of it as kind of the welcome to the world introductory uh, statement of his name. And then um, many, many years later, uh, there may be another one at the other end. But essentially, it's part of this cycle of life and of understanding uh, the way that he's created us and made us to be. And the things that we innately know, I think that's kind of neat, too. All right. Um, that's my life song. Didn't see any questions? Okay, so QQQs, for those of you that are new, is, is the way I can find the questions uh, easily. Uh, let us then close in prayer. Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Echad. Father, we come before you, we thank you. We thank you, Abba, that at least for now, we are able to gather together on your Sabbath, and that we are able to, to let iron sharpen iron, and to hear and to speak and to study and to share and to do your word. So we pray your blessing. I pray your blessing on all of those who are here, all of those who will listen later, and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Because your word never returns void. You have declared it to be so. We know that there are so many things, Father, that are coming to pass that are in uh, the near horizon. We know that there are going to be challenges. We know that there would be things that uh, would be scary if it was not for the fact that we trust in you. And so, um, since your word also tells us to be strong and of good courage, Kazakh, and to fear not, well, we pray that you would guide us in that. Help us to be strong. Help us to fear not. Help us to rightly divide your word. Help us to be found doing your work, as you have said, when you return. Help us to be counted worthy to escape all these things that are coming upon the earth. Bless all of those, Abba, who seek to be called by your name. And help us to walk in such a way that we demonstrate that we are those who seek to be called by your name and to do your work. And we pray, Abba, that um, we would be able to be good and faithful servants unto you. Guide us in that. Help us in that. And Father, all of this we ask in your set-apart name. For you are our King, our Savior, our Redeemer, our help in times of trouble. You are our all-sufficient El Shaddai. And you are Yahuwah Zedeknu, Yahuwah Vitzivenu, Yahuwah Zevuot, Yahuwah Nisi, our banner, Yahuwah Rapha, our healer. Father, we thank you and praise you. For you are Yahuwah, and we say, Hallelujah. Amen. If we don't have any other questions, let's go ahead and close with the Aharonic blessing. We remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak in turn to Aharon and his sons and say to them, This is how you bless the Benai Israel." Say to them, Via Simlecha, ha ha, shalom. 
May Yahuwah bless you and keep you. May Yahuwah make his face to shine upon you. May Yahuwah lift his countenance upon you and give you his shalom. Amen. And thus he said, they shall put Shemi, my name, on the Benai Yisrael, and I myself shall bless them.